2022 ACB Virtual DC Leadership Meetings will be held Saturday, March 12th through Tuesday, March 15th. Registration is $20 for ACB members and $30 for non-members. ACB members were sent a discount code via email. If you're an ACB member and did not receive the discount code, please call the Minneapolis office at 612-332-3242. Registration closes March 9th. Visit acb.org for more information or register at https slash slash tinyurl.com slash 2022-DC-Leadership-Meetings. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello there. This is Judy Wilkinson, President of the Library Users of America, and I want to thank Cheryl Cummings, who's Chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee, for asking Lua to co-host this wonderful event with us today on this holiday that Mr. Broughton is joining us on. And so, Cheryl, thank you and welcome. Oh, thank you. No, I was so excited that um, you, I I think I barely got the words out of my mouth and you're like, yes, (laughs) which is is wonderful. So I want to say good evening to everyone. And as Judy said, I'm so honored that uh, to be hosting, co-hosting this event with her and um, with the Library Users of America. Um, As you can imagine, I mean, we're all readers. I I have always loved reading. And when I became blind, um, it was sort of one of the first things I was really worried about. Like, how am I going to continue to read? What am I going to do? And I was so, like, relieved and excited when I was introduced to the National Library Services and, and I knew that um, I, there you know, was a way that I could continue reading because that had always been something that was super important to me. Um, as many of you know, if not all of you know, February is Black History Month. And Black History Month calls on us to recognize the contributions of African Americans. And as Judy said, we thought that this would be a wonderful time to start to get to get uh, to start to get to know the new director of NLS, Jason Broughton. Well, Br- <laughs> go, I'm sorry, sure, go ahead. Oh, um, should I continue? I've got a, a whole introduction. Or- yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, okay. So, Mr. Broughton began as a biology <laughs> teacher in Florida. And after moving home to become a caregiver for his mom, he earned his master's degree in library and um, informational information science. And later on, he earned a master's degree in public administration. Uh, Mr. Broughton has worked in libraries in South uh, Carolina and Savannah, Georgia, and um, he was the first African-American appointed to be Vermont's state librarian. And then he became, in August of 2021, 
Um, the new appointed library uh, um, director of the um, of NLS. So again, I'd wanted to extend my thanks to Mr. Broughton for taking the time to talk with us this evening. And I'm going to turn it back over to Judy. Well, and the next voice you hear will be Mr. Broughton. Mr. Broughton, thank you so much for taking your holiday. And the first, I asked you that we would like to hear a little bit about you and your some of the fun things you like to do and some of the more personal things that you'd like to share with us. So over to you and thanks again for joining us. All right, well, thank you and hello to everyone. Happy President's Day and no, it is not just the day of sales for consumerism. Just remember <laughs> that. And yes, it is also Black History Month and I am deeply honored and also humbled to be here with you today. What a, what a, a joyous event, actually. It always is nice to allow people to experience things in so many different ways across their lifetimes and spans that are really meaningful. So I'm really just happy to be with you this evening. Now, before I get started, I, I do need to time myself, have my, my cell phone and my work phone on because um, a microphone is a deadly thing for me. I can talk you all. <laughs> I'm letting you know that. You love to talk. You do not want to meet me at a bar because I will be there all night there with you. They'll be saying, last call. You don't have to go, but you definitely can't stay here. I've been told that quite a few times. Now, with that, a little bit about me. Oh, my goodness. Originally from a very rural area in South Carolina called Cross, um, where I grew up. Just wonderful uh, parents. Um, I have a background, I would say, because of my family in law enforcement and the military and education. So public service is a very big thing in my life. I chose to go into education um, to the demise of my parents who wanted me to go to the Citadel and um, <laughs> off went um, into that. But um, a unique facet for me that I proclaim proudly as a former Southerner and now back in the South is that my family is a family of bootleggers. So, yes, all of you in the ACB who might say, oh, I, too, know of this thing called moonshine. Yes, that, that is some family history, but that's a different topic. On to my educational background, a degree in biology from an HBCU, um, Historically Black College, Florida A&M. Um, moved down then to Pinellas County and worked as a teacher um, with biology and a host of other items. And leaving Pinellas County to go over to Tampa because it was $3,000 more. I will never forget my salary, though, as a teacher. It was $24,000. And I was screaming, why did I go to school for this? And then I stayed there for a very wonderful time and moved up the ranks doing a whole host of things. I earned a public administration degree from the University of South Florida. And then in the midst of, I would say, a really unique thing at most times people are kind of living their lives or looking at a trajectory in their 30s. My brother called out of the blue and said, um, I need you to come home. I only have one brother. And um, he's younger and he just said, you, you need to come home. And I remember why that was the case, because I had had suspicions. My mother had been diagnosed with dementia a while prior and I had to make some decisions. And I usually tell people up front because it doesn't show that I think I'm um, a horrible son, but it gives you the reality if you've ever had to deal with uh, such terminal illnesses in certain cases where 
I did not want to go home. I just did not. I tell people that really up front, but that entire experience of being a caregiver to my mother um, until she passed for many, many years um, was a really life transforming experience. So at what some people call the height of my career, where I could have been in some very unique places, I had to give it up and return home back to South Carolina and had to start over. When I returned home, it was the height of the first major recession. And so you would know that even school districts were not hiring teachers. In fact, they were laying them off. And I uniquely got everything that I needed to have done, done for her. It took a year to get it situated. There's states and there's farmland and stuff we had to kind of navigate and got all that done. And the weird part, again, this could be the universe, this could be God, as you call it, a host of whole other people based on your religion. But the day I actually got her situated and I placed her into a wonderful place that was going to take care of her, within 24 hours, I actually got a job offer. I had been looking for a job all that year, had not worked in a year, lived off my savings. Thank goodness I had great parents to teach me that <laughs> effort to do. And I was able to get employed by Charleston County as an employment workforce specialist. So I got to see, as I call it, a different side of what happens to people when education, life, circumstances all collide and say, we now believe you will be laid off or you're going to be unemployed. And it made me see this other side, I call it, of the educational coin in which life really is a continuous learning experience. If you're not learning, you, you truly are not evolving. And we know what happens if you, even if you do or do not believe in evolution, if you don't evolve, you don't live. You, you're just not going to go forward. And I unfortunately got to see the side of what happens when you are in your 50s, 60s, and 70s and have been working at a company for 20 30, 40 years. And they say it is unfortunate, but we're letting you go. I had to help those people find work. And it too was a humbling experience. And doing that, I was asked around to a lot of places. And I also worked with people who had barriers, which felonies, hard to employ, a whole host of other issues, including the incarcerated. And I learned quite a lot um, in a different way. And some people say I was really great at it. I did that for a while and I came across a wonderful woman um, who I always will say, based on when people want to know about me, um, named Cynthia Hurd, who worked for the Charleston County Public Library System. And she asked me to come to her library because she heard that I had um, been able to really help a lot of people in some unique ways. Veterans, um, the homeless, career changers, people in their 50s, 60s and 70s actually get jobs. And I didn't get those people jobs. Those people got themselves the jobs. I just told them how to navigate the system and what society said that they could not do. That's the best way to put it. And I came out and we began to have a really good relationship by coming to the library because she was connected to that community. And um, one night I was going home. I used to work at that time. I had moved from Charleston County to um, a different position through her. When I said through her, she sat me down one day and said, someone should have told you this early on. And I thought I had done something wrong. And she said, well, I think someone should have told you not to go into education. And I said, oh my goodness, I think they should have told you to be a librarian. I wonder where you'd be if they had told you that early on. And I said, is there any money in that? And she just laughed and she said, but you chose teaching, ain't no money in that. And I said, well, touche. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
she gave me this job lead and was for the South Carolina State Library for workforce development trainer for the whole state through the library system, school, academic, and public. And I said, hmm, threw my backpack and looked at it over the weekend. And I realized I, I was doing all that and more. I did apply for the job and weirdly, guess what? I got it. And off my journey went into working for the South Carolina State Library in Columbia. And I still kept in touch with her for a year. But one night when I was leaving, um, we had heard about something happening in Charleston. And she, unfortunately, was one of the nine people who was killed <gasps> by Bill. Well, people, um, I would say consider her my mentor. She definitely was a person who got me interested in becoming a librarian. But I would never forget that experience of um, driving home, hearing it, then wake up the next morning and then understanding. And they said, we we now have the names of the people and knowing that she had been she had died. She had been killed. It was quite stunning. But her memory lives on for me. I continued to progress there and did a lot of things. And then I um, left the nest because I loved working at the South Carolina State Library. And some people might say, why? Well, I'm one of these people who say, you know, you're going to have to prove some stuff to me. And I came in at a very high level at the State Library. And it's considered a really kind of like prestigious thing. Usually people work their way up into that position. I kind of came in as this youngster. And so I did want to prove to myself and other people that I could be a public library director or an academia. And so I left and got a job. I was lucky to come in as a deputy director in Savannah, Georgia, for the public libraries. And that was amazing um, because two weeks into that job, my boss sat me down, the director, and said, I am so glad I I hired you because the board has asked me to resign. Two weeks after I had gotten the job. (laughs) And my panic, believe me, there were some explicatives that I would not want to say <laughs> aloud that went through my mind because I had never been in a situation like that. It was quite uh, not overwhelming, but immediately I, I knew what I needed to do. I connect with a lot of people, um, particularly the Georgia State Librarian, and we navigated that. And I did that for two years plus. And at the same time, I had met a wonderful person in South Carolina when I worked there at the State Library, who was a Vermonter. And I also met some Vermonters from Florida who left that in the 90s to go back to Vermont um, and don't say this even though it's on the record and recorded, to save their marriage. Vermont saves marriages. Believe me, if you want to save your marriage, move to Vermont. There's not much else to do other than learn about each other because that's what they did. And so I had friends there and believe it or not, a position came open for the Assistant State Librarian And I applied for that and I got it. I'd always wondered about living in Vermont because I visited quite frequently because of the people I'd met. And um, it was just a wonderful experience. Vermont is a place that really has a a place in my heart forever. It is an environmental landscape like I've never seen. It, It is an Eden, an outdoor Eden, in fact, in the summer and in the winter, a wondrous place for people and I have a lot of dear friends in New England. So this uh, Southerner went up to become a Yankee for a little while, as some people would say, and had a glorious time. When that went on, eventually my boss, unfortunately, could not stay due to some physical items, unfortunately. Scott Murphy, who I do think about as well. And he is now um, signed up for the service. So I'll just say it that way. Um, in the prime of his career, he was cut down, cut down. We really had a lot of plans, and he said he's going to step aside to our shock. And 
the governor, Governor Scott, who is still there, talked with me and said, I think I'd like to make you our state librarian. And I looked around saying, are you crazy? <laughs> are you sure you want to do this? And off we went. And so I became Vermont's first African-American uh, state librarian and the only African-American state librarian for the state librarians of the country as the African-American male state librarian. A lot of people don't really know about state libraries, but each state has a state librarian and U.S. territories. And so it's an interesting group of things that we actually do. And off I went looking to help the libraries in Vermont. And I did so. And then the Library of Congress came calling. And with that, it's an appointed position and it's kind of um, hard to say no when the country asks you to serve. And so I uh, left Vermont, um, I would definitely say begrudgingly, <laughs> and decided to serve the country in this unique capacity because my ethos, I guess, was something that some people had found and thought that I would make a wonderful person in this position. It is definitely life-changing. It is something that is very fascinating to me and has helped open my horizons when we say as librarians that our goal is to serve all people because the mission of NLS is very simple. It is that all may read and this has definitely allowed me to understand fully what that mission is when we come to talk about people simply having access to materials like anybody else. And that's a little bit of about my background. Oh, that is just fascinating, Mr. Broughton. That is just wonderful. It's inspiring. I'm a little choked Thanks. up here because, you know, you are serving the country. And, and uh, we understand, by the way, that you were a fine librarian in Vermont. The, the blind folks there let us know. Uh, that you did a great job for the visually impaired folks in Vermont. So we know you've got a little bit of experience. I'm just going to say some of the questions you may not have answers for, that's all mm -hmm. right. We know we're going to actually see you again in the summer. And I'm going to say something about that as we near the end of the call. But, you know, please don't, you know, don't worry if you don't have answers. We know you'll get them. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with the first question, and it's, it's a very interesting question. I'm pretty much going to take them in order, though not quite. Mary Haroyan, if you're uh, there and uh, would like to unmute, I'm going to ask your question first. Mary wants to know if we could ever consider in our front material um, doing descriptions of book covers. And she makes a good case for that. She says a lot of sighted folks buy books based on the covers. And there's a lot of information there. And she just wonders if we've ever thought about that and if we could consider it. And what's your thinking on that? Oh, I would say what a very timely question for us. Internally, we have a section head, Alice O'Reilly, who is over collections, and Dominic Smelly who is definitely assisting with the back end items. And we are having a conversation right now about annotation. And so know that we are looking to study a few things and I would definitely say some changes are going to occur in a whole host of different ways 
to make sure that we can provide the best and most accurate and engaging description of a book. Of course, I do have to add this caveat where I too have to learn this, which is I can't move as fast as I might want to because we are a federal entity, number one. And number two, we are part of the Library of Congress, which sits under the Congress. <laughs> so things may take a while to move forward in different ways as one would like as they work their way through the proper channel. But I definitely will say that would be something that we are definitely discussing. Your question comes at a very unique time where this is being studied within our collection section. And that is something that I will alert them to when it comes to the book jacket and the face of the book and how that could be more descriptive for our users. Duly noted. Mary, if you're there, do you, does that yeah. answer your question? It does. This is Mary. Thank you so much, Mr. Broughton. I, uh, I appreciate your answer and, and look forward to, um, you know, any future changes. And thank you. Thank you. Okay. I've got a, a question that has come up, uh, uh, and I'm asking you sort of questions that are fairly closed-ended so that, you know, mm -hmm. to begin with here. There's another one that uh, just came in, and I think this person has asked this question before, so I think uh, it's an ongoing issue. Uh, Olivia Ostergaard asks about books that are self-published. She has published her own book and has uh, been unsuccessful in getting NLS to do it. And she asks, if you do have a self-published book, how might you go about alerting NLS or seeing, we know a lot of books obviously have been uh, published uh, that were self-published. So if you could talk a little bit about how that might work. Hmm. That's going to be an interesting one because there are some layers that one could examine as I was beginning step, as I said, that there are state libraries and then there are the network libraries that are across the country that would probably be best suited first to connect with because at our level, it can be a very long process on a federal, I would say, layer to just connect with us directly. There's a lot, a lot of bureaucracy and I'm saying that nicely. Within that, however, if you connect with your network library, one of the things I would say that's really beneficial about that is proximity. It's closer. And you have people who can probably assist you a little bit better than we could in navigating any types of local things that need to be done. In other words, if they're able to look at that to assist you to maybe look at the recording of it, how to get that then done and completed, make sure it is all cleaned up. And then if they are, I would say, really fortunate, then it gets connected to us by being uploaded. So I would suggest starting with your local network library, and we'd be happy, or I'd be happy to when I get back in the office tomorrow, to send you any contacts to your local network library to be able to look out to connect with you on books, because they're the ones who would make, I would say, a variety of selections to have what is recorded, and then those items can then be added if they deem it to the catalog and therefore at least on a local level be there. And then eventually over time, if they want to then consider it something to upload to NLS, it will then come to us for the national catalog itself. 
but at least on a local level, it could be within the catalog of a network library based upon their decisions. Okay. Olivia, if you're there. Um, yes, I am, Judy. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Broughton. Okay. Um, I have Olivia. Don't yeah, make, kind of make it make it quick. Okay, I have contacted, and when you're saying our local, so that would be our fre our regional uh, Fresno County Library. Is that our? It, it can be them, but you want to make sure it's one of the I would say 98 network libraries that connect with us because they're the ones who are going to have the sound engineers and the recording booth to therefore allow that to occur if they okay. deem it. I'm in California, so which one would be the closest oh to my me? God. I know, definitely know that you have a regional and a sub-regional. I know that you have the San Francisco area that has... Yes. Um, yes, yes. That, that her, si to. her city of Fresno also has a sub-regional library. So should she contact the sub-regional or Mike Marlin at the, at the Northern California? I would say either one that makes yeah. it to her based on her proximity. Okay. okay. Thank, Great, you. thank you so much. Okay. This is a timely question. Is uh, The gentleman, Mark Schneider, was not sure he could be with us, but he asks whether we would ever consider a category for race and ethnicity, uh, you know, like, all, like the other categories that we labeled. And he asks whether that might ever be a possibility. Hmm. Now, that's going to be a very unique one particularly because of timing. Oh, my goodness. Across the country, we're having some very unique I would say conversations about race and gender and this yes. and those things. And here's where that I wouldn't want to say is going to be tough, but we in libraries generally don't necessarily always pull out race and ethnicity as its own unique category because of the content. And that would be something to examine. Now, can we showcase, can we highlight? Can we make sure that that is more visible? I would definitely say yes within those content areas. If a person is trying to find a specific group of people within that to say, well, are there any black authors that might have written something on this topic? That I fully understand as a person of color. But normally libraries do not, I would say, categorize through that because it can also open up, I would say, some very unique and tough conversations as to why that would need to be done. I would highly suggest then, and understanding that question, that what we might want to do, at least from an NLS perspective, for those who want to search those books, and they can go across, I don't say just race, but it could be sex. There might be women. There might be men. There might be a host of things in which we want to say, here are some other aspects that you might not know of people who might have written on the topics that you are searching for in a way that you had not considered. So that would be something that I want to kind of look at and then talk internally with my staff to understand what that looks like. Again, one of the things I, I must reiterate is that a federal entity we will always have to navigate the conversations of what the federal government requires to make sure that we do not discriminate in any way across the board. And that can also sometimes be at odds in doing really what society might say is we're just trying to make sure everybody has their fair share. There are things that we will have to navigate to see what that looks like. But I fully understand, I think, this question in asking what more can be done to showcase 
the people who also have contributed their works on different topics. Is Mr. Um, Schneider with us? I'm going to just ask a quick follow-up for that, uh, Mr. Broughton. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that someone could call the research staff, which is always available to us, and if, if one did want things that are not clearly categorized, perhaps is it possible that the research staff could maybe do research for an individual who was looking for maybe a fairly specific category of books? Yes, that is something that we could definitely do, because what you could say, I would say the question would might come in to a host of people, even our reference uh, section that we have at NLS, a person might ask, are there any women authors on this? Are there any African-American authors? Are there any Hispanic authors that have written this? Jewish, Irish, that can be done. That's great. Yes. So we, I think we should. Sure, Cheryl, sure. I, I have a follow up. Um, and and this is just maybe a thought question. Um, so I know that there are labels that are available. So I've gotten books and I've seen they say like LDS or LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, is there value in adding other labels like that? Um, or... Is there, as you said, I mean, is there a way, like, if I wanted to say, tell me uh, all of the African-American writers, like, who do you have in the NLS collection? Is there a way to, to get at that? Hmm. There, oh, from a library side, there are so many ways to do that. Normally, I was, when I say normally, the back end, which is the cataloging part, definitely will have that there if the cataloger is very... I would say, well-versed in making sure all the proper fields are filled out because then the search becomes easy for a person who might be a reason advisor to allow them to look at it and say, okay, here's what I can pull for you from the catalog. If the information is a little bit different, then it becomes how do we want to physically and outwardly make this accessible in a way that people see it easily beyond the catalog, which is through touch and feel in this case, or through a sticker for those who might have low vision or even sighted to a certain degree, what does it look like to then declare and proclaim that? And that could be an option. I know that there are special moments such as this month where that would take place. Most places would have a list of books already kind of pulled out or even their newest or their own classics and say, here are the standards that we have currently with some updates. So there are some things that we can do, but if it is to be a continual item, that will be something that I would like to look at with my staff. Okay. Thank you. I, I hope so. Cause I, as you said, I mean, I understand that, you know, being able to go through the catalog, you can find that, but as a user, that's not necessarily the way I, I'm searching. Um, mm-hmm. And as a user, I think there's so much value in being able to say, like, you know, I I don't know, tell me, who are the the Latin American authors or the Hispanic authors that are part of the current collection? And I mean, you know, if I'm trying to find a new a new author, um, so I, I think it there there's I I hope that at some point we can get to that. I appreciate it. And again, I will definitely take this to our collections people and see what 
might come of it. Thanks. Okay. I'm Cheryl, I'm going to postpone your other question because I think Mr. Broughton has partly answered it, but, but I'm going to go on to one of the and uh, Bob Acosta asks this question, and I've got to tell you, it just came up on the e-reader list this morning. He asked basically, when will all the states have e-readers? And a lot, and then there was a question just this morning on the e-reader list saying, are we still part of the pilot? Is this, is this list part of the pilot or are in here, not on the in the pilot program. So let's open the can of worms called the e-reader, and Mr. Broughton, just give us an update, and then we'll ask anybody who has follow-up questions on the e-reader to to come in, and uh, I'll I'll be the traffic cop. So if you would just go ahead and open that can of worms called the e-reader, Mr. Broughton. All right, thank you. This has been, I would say, a really wonderful pilot and project for NLS in going through the review of the Braille e-readers. And we have found it to be a really, really successful item. And of course, as I had said before, all of you got on with a small group of people who are hosting this, that life happens. So that is the first way I'll actually have to put it to you. Life happens. You might say, what in the world do you mean by that? One of the things that we will continue to do is to make sure that we elevate our digital experiences at NLS. And we believe that this is a strategic and important and vital role in which we want to modernize Braille in the format that it is. And it allows us to do continued research, look at how we want to deal with development of it, and also get what dissemination of what's new, what is affordable, what is affordable? I said three times. What is affordable and refreshable when it comes to Braille devices and e-readers? So what we've done, to give you a, little, a background on that, is we have, we've now procured about 4,500, I think, additional e-readers for our fiscal year, which was in 2021. And in looking at that, we have about, I think, almost 10,000, really like probably 9,500 e-readers that are in the hands of pilot libraries. And they may be, I would say, also probably undergoing review by a variety of people, including ourselves, NLS, for the near future for delivery. We have found that the feedback we have gotten has just been really wonderful and is extremely promising. So it looks really bright on our horizon as we look forward to that. When we look at some of the different types of, um, I say, breakdowns from our year, just to give you a little bit of background from how I understand it, fiscal year 2019 to fiscal year 2020, the pilot libraries had an average of 120, I think, 6% increase. That is really just wonderful to actually see. And then when you compare, I would say, fiscal year 2020 to fiscal year 2021, the digital, I would say, downloads for Braille skyrocketed in the pilot libraries. And we are seeing things that are ranging 110% to 316%. And yes, you heard me say that correctly, 316%. So we know that this is definitely going to be considered something that we want to do. And looking at that, there are some problems that we have been alerted to. Cost. <sighs> Followed by 
we are dealing with right now, as we all know, inflation. And the costs come to us in a different way now that we have this occurring and we have had disruptions. We are looking at our supply chains for those who are following the news. It is a serious thing. We are experiencing not just us, but the federal government delays in which people are telling us throw six months out the window. You should be looking at a 12 month delay or you're going to get these things in trickles. So it's definitely something that we, not only what I would say was concerned about, we are now at the mercy of what life is doing. We can only do what we can do as it comes in, given our current situation when COVID started, it slowed everything down and stopped. And it sometimes takes a long time to restart those supply chains to get them up and running. Even if they now get themselves up and running, we now have added an increased cost that we might not have budgeted for when we started this process because everything now costs more. And that is impacting us in ways that not really, I think, prepared for, but are now having to grapple with. We're gonna to continue to execute our contracts when it comes to the Braille readers. And we believe it will slowly move us closer to the goal of getting a lot of them out full spectrum of what we call our Braille modernization initiative um, within our Braille program. We'll continue to have our pilots going on. So now is the time to not, I would say, do nothing. We are doing quite a lot. We're going to continue to do pilots. We're going to try to get as much prototype devices. And we're going to have it expanded um, as much as we can to include 23 network libraries. So that will have a little bit more people added to the frame to help us examine what this looks like. As we do this, we're going to instruct the pilot libraries to make sure that they are focused on enrollment of patrons who can really examine these devices for um, assistance that will be provided to the participants to make sure they navigate the devices correctly and see all that it can actually do, along with letting us know the drawbacks as well. A wonderful thing, but we also want to know what the negatives are that we can improve upon. And of course, we hope to constantly gather data. So that means we're gonna ask for a lot of surveys through data collection and analysis. And then guess what, that's finally done. We will hope that things have kind of leveled off and then we can begin, if we are lucky, as we say we are, rollout and distribution of the devices. We do wanna make sure that we give, I would say, being the new director, one of my big things is customer servants and also the following. My staff hears me say this all the time. We do not need to worry about being right. Now, some of you are going to say, how dare you say that? That's insane. My goal, as I have had an interesting life, is not to get it right. The goal is to make sure not to be right, but is to get it right. And that's really the bigger goal for us right now. There's going to be a lot of challenges. These are the things that we're dealing with. And we really want to just get it right. And that might take us a little bit longer than we had anticipated. So assurance is going to be big. Making sure that when we release this, that it is doing what it says it can do. Opposed to, oh, hold up, we have to stop for a moment. That's not going to be a good look. And so while that might disappoint some people in saying, oh, I wish I had it now. I want you to have it. The thing I want you to have it in its correct operational form so that you can take off and use it as much as you can to enjoy it fully. So with that, 
As we look at our budgets, as I can close on this topic and allow you to ask me more, we are right now constructing our budget for 2023. And with that, we're looking to ask probably um, for, I think, two point, oh my goodness, this is off the top of my head, um, I think 2.3 million to look at having this request fund this project into 2024. And so if we are successful, we will continue to research this. But believe me, when people see that pilot libraries are looking at download rates of 110 to 316%, I'm quite sure that Congress is going to be quite interested in making those numbers are accurate. And we can stand behind that fully. So we are very impressed with what we have seen. Mr. Broughton, did you say there are 23 libraries now involved in the pilot project? We look to expand to 20. Ah. How many currently do we have? Do you know? Oh, my goodness. I'll tell my head. I, I want to say, I think it's half of that or a okay. little bit less than half. But our goal is we, we are lining up those who are very interested because we know there's a lot of interest in this right now. Okay. Um, if Bob Acosta is on the line and wants to unmute, this was your question, and I want to make sure that he answered, Mr. Broughton answered it. And uh, otherwise, I want to hear from people. People have been so wonderful about staying muted and keeping quiet, and I want to thank you so much since we couldn't uh, make Lucy host. But if somebody has a question for Mr. Broughton on the e-reader, could you unmute and ask it now? And I will do my best to recognize you in the order that I hear your name. So say your name. Hi, this is Jane Tolino. Are you hearing me? Yes, Jane, go ahead. Thank you. I'm calling from Minnesota. Uh, it is my absolute express privilege to honor the Oregon State Library where I grew up. That was a long time ago. Jane, I think somebody is, is talking in the background on your in your. Um, thank home. you. I just shook them off. Um, the Minnesota Library, which serves me remarkably, and the Texas State Library, which has served me and will return there in a couple of months. I just want to say to you, congrats on the job you have. I wish you all the best as a person who has served on regional uh, appointments to libraries and have visited the Library of Congress. And I, my question is just and aside from all of the serious professional stuff, what have been your three favorite books of all times? I would love to know. Right now, I'm going to defer that question because we're asking for people who had questions on the e-reader. Um, are we there specific? <laughs> we'll come back. We'll come back to that one. Be thinking of that one. So, uh, other questions, please, specifically about the e-reader project. And Jane, could you please mute yourself again? Well, I um, am only wanting to just know how soon I can become involved as an e-reader project volunteer and assessor. And I'll 
mute myself now and just listen. Thank you. A really great question. I know what we are doing is looking at a variety of factors and also looking to make sure, because we work in collaboration with the network libraries, that they are comfortable and that they have capacity. So in looking at that, I would say hopefully you are within those areas that we are examining where people are saying, yes, we want to do this. We have the capacity to do it. And we are happy to roll this out and also be a part of this review. And we will definitely like to participate with you so that we can give you this information back. In other words, NLS, so you can make a really good grounded and informed decision. Based on where you're at, uh, that would be if you're saying Minnesota, but then you said you might be going to Texas. I would want to look in to see where people are at when it comes to what our next round of network libraries would be as we start to connect with them to see when they are ready to begin the next rollout of being a pilot. You make a very good point that the libraries who do take on this uh, project have to be at a certain level to manage the research and all the intricacies of, of dealing with this project, I'm, I'm hearing you say. That is correct because it is really wonderful to say, yes, I want it. But then the next level is going to be, we appreciate you doing it. Are you ready for the commitment? Which definitely is to say it's a pilot. And with that, there's going to need to be some data that's collected, lots of conversations, conversations with the people who are actually using devices. Because again, we don't need to be right. We want to get it right, which means we need to have a lot of things that we might not be thinking about based on, in some cases, connectivity, geography, downloading, collections, the whole host. I mean, the complete feel of the machine discussed and described with us so that we make sure that we are thinking about all these unique nuances that we might not have thought about as it went through. Are there any other people who want to ask questions on the e-reader? Yes, I have a question. My name is Shirley. Yes, Shirley. Make Shirley. It, get right to the question. Let's go. <laughs> okay. I, I would just like to know if you can tell me what happened to Ohio's involvement with the um, pilot project, because at one time, Ohio was supposed to be involved in it, and then a problem happened with some equipment, and they were kind of pulled back. And every time I've asked about it, I was told that you know, it was put on hold and I've never been able to find out anything about uh, what occurred there. And I was initially, you know, I had initially volunteered to be part of it. So I'm wondering if Ohio ever got into it or if they're just not part of the pilot anymore or what occurred. That is a great question because I was unaware of that and it might be where I need to check in with our section head, um, Mark Santangelo is his name, and he is new as the section chief for that area. And I want to connect with him to see what might have occurred. And one of the things that I can definitely um, say, and normally the person in this position from a federal position usually never should promise things, <laughs> I'm quite sure. But I definitely plan to provide information back to Judy on some of the questions that I'm not able 
to answer at this moment, such as this one. So I will work to find information on what this looks like and then provide it back to Judy to report out to the leadership and members of AC. I will, and I will definitely, just a second, Frank, I will definitely uh, do that. Uh, Anything that comes to me, Mr. Broughton, I will send to our library group and to Cheryl to communicate with her uh, group. And we will also communicate it to the general. We have a conversation list and a leadership list. Mm -hmm. So we'll definitely get any word you send back. Frank, my friend who lives half a mile away from me. Okay. That's right. Go ahead. Good evening, Mr. Broughton. This is Frank Welty from San Leandro, California. And <laughs> I have heard nothing but rave reviews of the humanware uh, reader um, that's in, in test right now. Um, I have heard, however, that, that there have been problems with the ZoomX readers. And what's the status on, on that? Is, is there progress there with ZoomX or what's happening there? That's a very unique conversation. We are working with both entities. Um, for those who may or may not know. And I think there is simply, again, a slowdown given the variety of things on the ZoomX side of how uh, the world is when it comes to supply chains and looking at development. We definitely have talked to, I would say, a variety of people to understand the status of where things look like and what we can do to be of a benefit to make sure that we are looking at our different prototypes and trying to examine them so they can come to market, what that time frame looks like. At the moment, however, we are, I'd be saying a holding pattern, unfortunately. And what that means is we're going to have to just navigate what I would call purgatory right now when it comes to some of the fiscal actions that we have. Um, I'm sharing a little bit more, but it's also public record, which is for those who might not have been paying attention, we have been riding on a, what is called a CR, a continuing resolution <laughs> for quite a long time. If you understand what that looks like for an entity such as ourselves, even for the federal government, the thing that my staff hears me say frequently is, well, I guess we're just going to keep driving with the parking brake on. That's not a good way to run an organization when you have um, limited, tight, and specified amounts of money come out in drips and drabs. So therefore you sometimes have to vendor on notice, supply chains have to be slowed to a trickle and then everything else trickles. So in looking at that, we have most recently, I think 24 hours prior, we are understanding that the Congress is looking to do something, I would say positive and get out of this cycle. And we hope that they are able to pass a budget that allows us and the full federal government to go forward with your and mine tax dollars to the benefit of all of us in our territories and in the landlocked states. If that is not the case, then we will return back to the drips and drabs of having to be very strategic in how we spend money because we don't have our full budget. That's the easiest way of saying that, and I hope that I was not too biting no, that's, a, I think, a very honest answer. Excuse me, Judy. Um, you do have one other person with their hand raised. Ah. Um, and so I just want to say, if you have your hands raised and you are called on and uh, after you speak, if you could please mute yourselves, that'd be great. 
And if you could also lower your hands, because I can't. <laughs> okay. And Thank you, Lucy. If you can at least tell me that there are hands raised, yeah, that really helps. Let's, let's ask the person. Who, can you tell us who it is that has their hands yes. raised or what phone number it is? It's signed in as Bay State Council of the Blind. I think that might be Brian Charleston. I think it might be. That is exactly who it is. <laughs> I, and um, you will probably recognize the name Charleston from your list of directors of your regional libraries. My I wife, Kim Charleston, is the director here in Massachusetts. Uh, and as a result of that, Massachusetts being one of the pilot states, um, I have one of the ZoomX machines and have been enjoying it uh, very, very much as a way to read material. I've got kind of a two-part question here. Part question number one is, uh, how is NLS providing support to the libraries that are doing this distribution and testing when it comes to providing technical support? Uh, this library has just finished distributing 400 units and provided them not only to Massachusetts, but also to Tennessee, in as much as it's got a contract to provide these kinds of services to the citizens of Tennessee. Um, but the big issue, as you've mentioned before, is a library has to be prepared to take on this responsibility. And it's pretty substantial, especially when it comes to tech support. I should also let you know that I directed the Carroll Center for the Blinds Technology right, Program so for 35 years. So please a, mute. Somebody needs okay. to mute. Here's AC. It's, it's a very complicated thing to provide tech support for what is, in fact, a complicated device. How is NLS planning to support its libraries in the libraries supporting that technical support? That was a really great question on this because one of the facets that we are looking at, I would say with my main focus, being on customer service and customer care for our network is looking at do they have the support and the conversations to, I would say, fully launch these types of things properly. And some of that we are now looking at making sure that we, NLS, has a few things that we might need to develop, which make it easier for the networks to access information quickly in a variety of ways. Um, we haven't worked out all of the logistics, but we are beginning to talk with our network to make sure that we understand, do we, do we have what you want? Followed by, what is it that you think you may need? And then we will have to go, as one would say in the old fashioned days, you take it to the woodshed and you see what can be done. And again, I must preface it as a federal entity, because sometimes the thing that you want to do, you can't do the way that you want to do it because the federal government says that's not applicable or not possible. So you then have to look at what can be a workaround, what can be something that is modified that could be given to people in a way in which they have it through a variety of lenses. I believe in tiered services, which means the first is give people as much information that they can find on their own. And that means making things accessible. And of course, very timely thing for our topic today, followed by, okay, they've tried and done all that. That then means we need to be prepared to have that up by various ways of contact. Of course, we have network consultants 
that any of the network libraries can connect with along with the section head. And if that unfortunately is not able to answer the question, which would be kind of, I would say very unique, it would be escalated again to persons like myself to then be able to triangulate through my leadership and the deputy director who also is named Jason, um, what we could do to examine how to get you the information that you need or sadly, why this might not be the best way to navigate that type of communication um, in the way that we all might have wanted to, but here's what we could then do. So looking at tiered structured ways of making sure that things are accessible and easy to find will allow us to begin to take on that challenge. We, again, are really taking a review of ways of things that we are doing to make sure that we are I would say, number one, doing right by our network, but giving you, if I can pull it off, that's why I'm hired, giving you things that you did not know you actually wanted or needed. And that is a really big challenge because I do feel that personally and professionally, customer service is important. And it's not just being nice. It's not just being available. It's actually being able to say, Here's why I can't help you. And let me tell you why. That's one of the best things, unfortunately, that sometimes have to happen. But that should be very rare, hopefully, in our jurisdiction. And the goal would be, here's what we found. And how do you want to triangulate that? Because one of the things that we must also remember is that each of the network libraries are their own entities. When I was a state librarian, that's the one thing I have to always tell all the people. And they said, can't you tell these libraries what to do? These people in Burlington need to. And I would sit people down and say, you do realize that they have their own board. You do realize that they're on their own entity. And I am not, in a sense, the ring that rules them all. <laughs> I am only here to collaborate and assist. But I can ask them to connect with you in a variety of ways. So that is going to be our goal as NLS to foster lots of collaboration and understand what you need and see how we can make that very accessible and possible in a timely way, even though we are the federal government. Brian is immediate, I'm sorry, Brian is immediate past president, by the way, of the library users and really does know this. And having said that, then Brian, I'm going to ask you, uh, this may, Mr. Broughton, be holding your feet to the fire a little bit, but Brian, do you do you have a follow-up or do you? Yeah, do you... again, the biggest issue for me is I know so many years were put into the audio talking book machines and a great deal of what was attempted in that, and I think quite successfully, was making them simple to use. When you're talking about something like a refreshable Braille device, book reader, it is by its very nature more complicated to use than here's the play button, here's the pause button, here's the faster button, here's the slower button. There's many, many more choices to be made and to personalize the experience of using a refreshable Braille device like this one. My biggest concern is that uh, it's a great device, love it, but I also know that my library, which is one of the better funded libraries, the better staffed libraries in and therefore can afford to have a specialist there to support this device, that that's an unusual situation between all the network libraries. The question is, what is NLS going to do to help the libraries know 
and staff what is necessary to support the use of this device ongoing. And I guess part of that also is <laughs> I'm retired now. And it's reminded me more of times than not that the bulk of NLS library patrons are older than I am. And they're not going to be tech users. Uh, they're not going to be born in the tech age. Hey, and Brian, they still need that support. So what can we do in that regard? Dealing with older users of new technologies. Mm. That is a very unique question, which goes off in different forays. <laughs> because the librarian side of me has seen this question before when the technology revolution came, I would definitely say starting in 2010, when cell phones started to really begin to move into the marketplace. They were there, but they really weren't as smart as people would say, which we now call a smartphone. And what libraries had to then do, when I say do, and I should, let me back that up. I don't want to say do. I want to say what libraries decided to take upon themselves, because libraries didn't have to do this. They knew that in their community, there were people who were going to be technology um, challenged, or in some cases, if they are lucky, the old fashioned phrase was, you are a technology nomad, you're moving from one area to a different area to make sure you can keep up. Um, even though in some cases, people were living in technology deserts, and libraries themselves decided, lots of them, to begin to educate the public. And looking at this from the standpoint of the network libraries, that is going to be not so much a challenge, but is definitely going to be a situation of capacity and will and how, I would say, NLS can try to assist a network library or and the state library and looking at what it can do to try to help that state or community have, oh, it's challenging here. I would say have the resources that it needs because NLS is limited in that we don't tell anybody what to do. We don't give out grants like IMLS does to state libraries to fund down. And state libraries are using some of that money to fund the network libraries with that. So in trying to answer your question, the thing that I have seen from my personal and professional experience as a state librarian and as a public library director, the best thing that can be done is a lot of education and training. Some of it is going to be in ways of talking about outreach what does it look like to find different funding streams? What does it look like to understand the policy implications and also navigate the politics of the state, which means that people have to be trained in the art. Yes, it is an art of understanding, guess what? Politics from local all the way up to their own legislature. NLS is not going to be able to do that the way I would say I might want to because that's going to be beyond parts of our mission. But I definitely know one of the best things that a person can do is to train somebody to say, here's what I need to let you know you're going to run into and you need to be prepared on how are you going to discuss this with your state library if the state legislature says, well, we understand that you want to put in requests for millions of dollars. Tell us why. What does that look like? 
a person who does not have those skill sets, that policy request, as we all know, will die in committee. So for me, this goes into the area of understanding outreach. What does advocacy look like, which we are not really allowed to do, but we definitely can talk about what education and informing people of policy can be. That is something that I'd want to work with ACB and the NFB to understand how can we work together while looking at our different roles and the requirements of the federal government to not deal with advocacy in a way that gets me in trouble to make sure that people understand what they need to do to be successful, to move something across a line to get the resources based upon a policy that is created, that is just and sound and unified to their own states. Okay. Um, I would ask anybody who has questions now to please raise their hand now that I know that Lucy can check to tell me how many hands are raised. Um, are there hands raised? Thank you. Mr. Broughton, for the, uh, those answers. Yes. Um, we, and thank we, you, Brian, for those questions. We, <clears throat> excuse me. We have Nora. You can go ahead and unmute and ask your question. How many questions okay, do we have at the moment? Hang on I, one I, minute. Have- Hang on one minute. Okay. Lucy, how many hands do we have at the moment? Um, can you tell me? Let's see. Just one other so far. Okay. Okay. Go ahead, Nora. Okay. Anyway, I'm Nora from Phoenix, Arizona, and my question is: Once we, once the whole nation decides to have the all the libraries decide to have the e-readers, um, would it cost the patron who wants to borrow the e-readers cost any money or no? Let me understand that last part you said. Would the patron? Need She's to asking, be- does the patron have to pay for the e-readers? Well, our goal... Yeah, or just follow them. Yeah, our goal would be we would not want that to occur. We do know that in some cases people are probably going to be very excited and they may want to consider purchasing their own, but we try to do things at cost and we would not want that to be something that is a very high bar because that gets into a level of financial equity that we would not want to have fall on, I would say, a variety across the country. Nevertheless, we know that some people are going to want to buy these and we would have to look at what it looks like to navigate those conversations in a very fair way, because those would be probably sold directly from the vendor to a person who would like to have it. In our case, we would be trying to work with the network library and a host of things to think about what does it look like to bring things in at cost and then what that looks like for the patron to receive that. I can't say it's going to be free because that would be a, a dream and we're going to look to see what that looks like. But when we talk about scalable, it is going to be the big elephant in the room of, well, okay, if that's the, the way, how and who is going to pay for that if you want the patrons to have it at no cost? And that's thank something that you. I thank you. All right. Oh, excuse me. Yes. No, go ahead, Lucy. <laughs> one more. Area code 510 ending in 844. Hi, yes, uh, Stephen Mendelson. 
Mr. Brown, thank you for a wonderfully informative and engaging presentation. Uh, at the risk, and with apologies in advance, if this question uh, strays into the area of advocacy, which I know you can't address, are there any categories of materials that you would uh, like to get for the collection that are uh, unavailable or restricted and available to you by reason of law, that is, intellectual property laws or uh, restrictions on the scope of NLS activities, or anything else that you, that you might have identified along those lines? Hmm. Now, that is a very intriguing question. And being humorous, you and I would need to connect on my burner phone offline. But um, in looking at that, I won't say specifically, but I can definitely tell you in areas, music would definitely be some areas that I'd be interested in a few things. There are also some works that definitely are adult category. And of course, children, children's books. Oh, my goodness. Collections would be very, very unique in a host of ways to make sure people are able to navigate just like everybody else. Also, I would be remiss if I did not say something that is more or less a personal preference of mine. But I've met some wonderful people. Oh, my goodness. In this area who have really, and I hate using the pun, they've just opened my eyes to know what is doable. So I would definitely say books in the areas of the culinary arts, cooking, oh my goodness, there are so many interesting things that I've learned in ways in which people can do things in a host of ways, as long as they have the proper equipment, things are fully safe and that they feel comfortable in their surrounding to do the type of things that people might not have dared think they could do or even believe that they ever wanted to do. So I see areas in life development, life access and joy and bliss that would allow people to, I don't want to even say it this way because some one person would say considered normal and that's just hogwash to me. Everybody is normal. We all just have different abilities. And so the goal would be to allow people to explore and expand their own horizons of the things that they didn't think they could actually do. But there's a host of things without getting too specific that I'd love to see come into fruition for people who did not or were unaware that they could have access to that and that we would make it available. And if it's not us, we would definitely want to be an informational resource that could point people to those resources to say, yes, we're limited for some reason, money, capacity, but here's what you should know if you are interested in that and here's who has it. That's also another thing that we are looking to become, I would say, under my reign as an informational resource, because we're not going to have everything you want. We don't have, I would say, the largest collection of things that everybody is going to want to have. But our goal definitely should be, if we can, we want to make sure that you at least have access and information to know where to get it if we don't have it. And that, to me, is the role of a really great library and a librarian. Great. I'm for that. And Steve is, I'll just disclose is my husband and he gets to eat a lot of my culinary efforts <laughs> and the more cookbooks out there the better okay um, all right somebody else lucy yes kathy blackburn yes can you hear me yes um i know that there have been a couple of efforts to record graphic novels um and i'm I'm not it's actually what I'm specifically interested in is a graphic nonfiction title. 
it there was a book published probably maybe 2017 by Professor Timothy Snyder. And then last year, okay, that was a regular book that was available from Bookshare and Audible, but never never picked up by NLS. Then last year he published it, an expanded edition. But it Kathy, was, could you get to your question? Yes, I'm, I am. <laughs> and the graphic version is not available in any kind of accessible format. It really would be nice to be able to get it from somewhere. Thank you. Very time because I was having a conversation <laughs> with our area that goes through the recording of a variety of material. And it was posed to me what were my thoughts on graphic novels and comic books. Could we look at what that might look like, even small, because there's a lot of things at play for those who would like to create a comic book. As you know, that there are sound effects, there are tons of visuals, and how to navigate the interpretation to make sure that the listener or the reader is able to understand contexts, and that can provide a challenge. But I do know, within my own staff, they are interested in doing that. So that would be, again, something that I would want to take back to my staff to say, yes, you already think about this, but here's how that question came out. What is it that we could do, even if it's, again, unfortunately, and I say it that way, a pilot that we would need to look at, or to say, do we want to go slowly and see about creating a few and seeing how the feedback is? We do know that people are interested in those, particularly those who might have had the opportunity to go to a Comic-Con, which I definitely have been a part of. And yes, you, you don't want to see me, or maybe you do want to see me dressed up as a stormtrooper. I have a full costume for that, that I do enjoy to get out. <laughs> but it is going to be an area that we are interested in. And your question is extremely timely because 96 hours ago, I had this question posed to me by my own internal staff as a thought. Wow. Um, you know, I've never, as a totally blind person, it would be so wonderful to have an experience like that. And that's, again, where a library could just educate us so, so much. It's fascinating to think about. Thank you for the question. That was a great question. Do you have a, did you get your answer? Well, Judy? Yes, I did. Thank okay, you. sure. What I want to do is give some people some updates, which might spur some other questions since sure. we're kind of like midpoint. Great, great. We're, we're getting down to the last 20 minutes or so, so it's a I good know. time for updates. Great. And then we can kind of see what questions are out there. Um, since you've kind of known a little bit about me, and I hope that you are gaining a feel for who I am and my conviction, um, I want to look from my arrival up to the very minute, what we have kind of had to navigate and what things look like. I've talked a little bit about some of the finances and the continuing resolution, and we're hoping for the best. But I would say from day one, um, next month I'll be here six months. I feel like it's already been five years because within the first day of being hired, I was told that I was going to have to go to the 
uh, oversight committee and discuss NLS in two weeks. And it has not slowed down one single day. In fact, it has just ramped up uh, continuously and it has been a wonderful thing of learning. But again, I do have a background where I understand this as opposed to some persons who might not have ever worked in government because working with the public library, yes, it's its own thing. That's part of local government. Work at state libraries in South Carolina and in Vermont. That is state government. And now here I am. And the federal government, the goal is just understanding how government works and the regulations and the rules that you need to abide by at a higher level. Because we are, I don't like to say playing, we are using taxpayer money, my money, your money to have these services brought in a way that they are to be accountable and how we developed and created things. But we have been accomplishing a lot before my arrival and definitely during the short time that I have been here. The library has just not stopped at all um, during COVID-19. And in some cases, I would say they actually thrive. They've been putting out some amazing things, particularly when I was able to look at it from the standpoint of being in Vermont with our ABLE library. And for those who don't know, uh, we renamed the library when I was there, uh, thanks to Dr. Vilma Vodi from there's a regular TBS, Talking Book Services Library, to ABLE, audio, braille, large print, and ebooks. I'm a big proponent of stop talking about people. Just stop it. Why don't you talk to people about the service you can provide? That way it becomes more universal and people understand it. Because sometimes when you say, which I have had, what do you know about NLS? What I get is the following. Oh, how lovely for my grandparents. And I'm like, no, it's called the National Library Service. Teenagers can join this. Why aren't we talking about that? Because people think it's just for old people. And it's not. It's for all users who need to use this service. And so we have a little bit of a perception that we need to kind of engage. No one will be left behind, but we definitely want to talk about the areas of how we are looking to chart a course for growing the service. You will be hearing, because I can tell you this up front, and I've said it to your counterpart, NFB, we are very, very sad about the last couple of years due to COVID and that we're looking at some numbers. There has been a, a sad drop for a variety of reasons. Um, unfortunately, death is a big one, but it's not the only reason that our statistics for users will go down a bit. But that allows us to understand what it looks like to begin talking about gaining and retaining patrons to this service and who aren't we talking to and who should we be talking to. With that, we are definitely having ramped up conversations in a wonderful way with the Veterans Administration. And we look forward to working with them because they are thrilled to see, yes, part of our mandate is veterans preference. And of course, the second is to make sure that we have materials for the blind and visually impaired, our main two mandates. With VA, we are looking to do a lot and they are just thrilled because there is a lot of people who could use the service from that standpoint. We also look to grow it in a sense in the areas of youth, young people, young adults, and then make sure, number three, that the people that we do have understand with us and alert us to, do we have what you want? Because it's no good if you say, we appreciate you being here, but I can't use you. That's a different outlet for us. And that's not something that I wouldn't, have on it, wouldn't want to hear. I'd want to know what is it that we might need to try to have, or if we can, how we can get you to that resource if we don't have it. So patron growth and retention is definitely top of my game. 
under my direction. Another facet that has been just wonderful is Mary Cash. That has just taken off and exploded and continues to just grow by leaps and bounds in ways that we have never really thought about. The name changed through our modernization. Um, as you have known, we have kind of changed our own name, which has helped as a national entity. And we are looking to be, as I said, more customer focused. You're going to see me really want to know what is it that you're thinking? Because I want to know. It helps us to understand that so we can provide the best services that we can. With that, however, we are looking at, as I call it, the three-legged stool collections, which has a variety of things. We're adding, believe it or not, in our collections area, a children's librarian. So you can see my focus is definitely on getting some young people to really be increased within our service. And of course, we're going to look to enhance our foreign language collection. As we go forward, we've kind of talked a little bit about it, delivery mechanisms. So we have BARB. We're looking at that when it comes to areas of how to improve it and the options that it may give people. And of course, that will be virtual. We're looking at our e-readers and then, of course, the DA2. There are things that we're having to navigate, which is development of these products, the IT collaborations that we have to make sure we get right. Followed by, what does it look like to begin moving some of this to the cloud along with the pilots that we have? You're going to see us offer a lot more training, as I said, because that is something that I feel is very beneficial to any entity to learn. And once you learn, then you can talk about the options or the non-options of things that you can begin to understand what you want to offer for your state, but also allow us to understand what can we do to get you trained up in a variety of ways. So we've been busy. As we look forward in 2022, we continue to navigate, as I said, that continuing resolution. That's going to be something that's there. But my biggest things are as takeaway is understanding patron need, self-service capabilities. And I definitely want to say we are looking at research on how to improve BARD as best we can based on these devices. So we have, again, small item that you may or may not know. We celebrate our 90th uh, year of service, which is really, really nice to know. And we can say that there is movement for the who have been watching this since you have heard of it. We are slowly seeing micro steps when it comes to conversations on NLS as possible, maybe applicable, if they feel good about it, if they want to do it, relocation to the Capitol complex, but that is in micro steps. There are just lots of positive conversations that have now started to begin since I have been here, not because of me. They were on track, but there are things that I am doing to help push and foster that so we can understand. But the key goal does law lie with Congress on if they would like to appropriate funding to begin a relocation of NLS to a new location. Duplication on demand continues to be a win-win for everything that we actually do. And we definitely are trying to take a cautious and optimistic approach to something that is dear to me, because I know that the network libraries are struggling with this and they might not tell us all the time. We're looking to foster a relationship with the United States Postal Service. We are doing that at a split level. The network tells us things, but I am having that specifically come out of the office of the director because I would like to talk with USPS in a way that we understand each other so we can really make sure that people understand what free matter for the blind is 
And also the network libraries could understand what it means, what the post office might require to make it more successful. That conversation, however, is going, I would say, surprisingly well. We're looking to have a meeting at some point. But that also means that there are people within the Library of Congress who are also interested in this conversation higher than I so they are appreciative of what we are doing to foster that conversation, and we look forward to meeting with them very, very soon. Then last but not least, I would say our outlook is bright. It's definitely in a tussle, given all the side things going on, but it is still really one in which we believe we will have a very productive and successful 2022 going into 2023. So I am cautiously, wonderfully optimistic of the future that I see before us. My next congressional item will occur in March, and that will be a financial discussion that the librarian, and that's what we call Dr. Hayden, the librarian of Congress, just the librarian, will be, of course, the lead, and I will be there to discuss any things that might come up about NLS fiscally but we are in the catbird seat and looking for birds. That's it. It's a great way to put it. Um, you know, we just heard last week about a, a possible upcoming duplication on demand for Braille. And I must say as a Braille reader, we're very,